I am uh, very passionate about seeing the church possess a culture of gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. Now, right out of the gate, I want to give credit where credit's due. This is uh, an idea, a concept that Ray Ortland Jr. wrote about in a book called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. I've developed my own theological underpinnings to it, but but the concept is his. One of the observations I've made about living in this area is that it's a very business-oriented area, very business-oriented area. Lots of people in our church, our community, work in the, the business world, which I guess should, should be um, understood given our location, proximity to a, a major metropolitan area here. Probably those of you in the business world are familiar with the term competitive edge or some derivation thereof. That is, what, what does your business do that others don't? Or, or what sets your business apart? What would cause somebody to come to you rather than your competitor? What's your competitive edge? The church has a competitive edge. The church has a competitive edge. And by the church, I mean the global body of believers in all times. We have a competitive edge. Edge. What is it that should set the church apart from other institutions? What should it offer that other institutions can't or don't? Two things. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. And it's my conviction that every time believers gather together, they should hear and experience gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Whether that's here on a Sunday morning or you're in your small group during the week or when you're having coffee with a brother or sister in Christ at the cafe, gospel safety time, gospel culture, gospel doctrine is our competitive edge. Gospel plus safety plus time encapsulates both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. So I want to, I want to spend some time this Sunday, the next two Sundays, talking about this and hopefully working to get it into our vocabulary, uh, getting it into our thinking, getting it into our times of fellowship and our experience of each other uh, in moments where we have fellowship together. Let me review what I mean by these three terms. First, gospel. People need multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. I want you to think about that definition carefully. Read it carefully. People, that is both non-Christians and Christians, need multiple, 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 multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. The gospel is, is, is not just in the New Testament. It's not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not just in Paul. The gospel is in Genesis. The gospel's in Exodus. The gospel's in Obadiah. And I bet you're waiting for me to show you that one someday. It's on every page. It's on every page. And it's not just non-Christians who need the gospel. Christians need the gospel. We never move beyond the gospel. We never get past the gospel. The gospel's not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. People need multiple exposures 
to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. Second is safety. People need the safety of non-accusing sympathy so they can admit their problems honestly. We don't make it safe for sin. If the church, um, if we made it safe for sin, the church would no longer be safe. Sin is what makes life dangerous. We make it safe for repentance, confession. And when people respond and say, hey, I am really struggling with this, we respond in grace and gentleness. We make it safe for people to come to us and say, hey, I'm, I've got some stuff going on in my life. We make it safe for that to be a common conversation. People need the safety of non-accusing sympathy so they can admit their problems honestly. Third, people need time. People need plenty of time to rethink their lives at a deep level because people are complex and changing isn't easy. Human beings are the only life form made in the image and likeness of the infinite God. If that's true, how complex do you think we are? We are extraordinarily complicated creatures. You are beautifully complicated. Just don't say that to your spouse. You're beautifully complicated. Just as an example of that, Think about the layers and depth to human motivation. Why do you do what you do? Why do you think what you think? Why do you say what you say? Why do you feel what you feel? Are you even cognizant of all the motivations that fuel and drive everything that you did this past week? I know I'm not. Those are deep waters. Because we're complicated creatures. Because we're made in the image and likeness of an infinite God. Additionally, people need plenty of time, not just because they're complex, but change takes time. Paul likens it to organic growth. Change, Christian change, is more like growing an apple tree than downloading an app. So people need plenty of time to rethink their lives at a deep level because people are complex and changing isn't easy. Gospel plus safety plus time equals gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel plus safety plus time equals gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Now today, what I want to do is make a biblical case for why these are so important. Why gospel safety time, why gospel doctrine, gospel culture are so important. I want to make a biblical case for that. Next week, we're going to look at what I mean by gospel doctrine. The following week, we're going to look at gospel culture. What do we mean when we we say that? Today I want to make a theological case, a biblical case for gospel plus safety plus time, but because I want you to see I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. It's not random. It's not idiosyncratic. Um, I I want to root it in the scripture. So let me get to the bottom line here, and I'm going to go back to the beginning. Take a look at this list. The Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the promised land, the temple, Jesus, the Christian, the church, the new heavens, and the new earth. What do they all have in common? Don't say it out loud. What do they all have in common? They were, are, or will be the dwelling place of God. They were, are, or will be the dwelling place 
of God. I'm gonna show you the technical nuts and bolts of this in a minute. This is more of a theological lecture than it is a sermon today, so I realize a few of you might be uh, pounding out Candy Crush in about five minutes. Uh, so if, you are th- if you're doing that in five minutes, just take this away with you. Take this away with you, it's, that's, and that's this. The church is meant to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. Write it down, memorize it, meditate on it. The church is meant to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. Let me put it differently. The church is meant to be Eden remixed. Eden remixed. You, as an individual Christian, are meant to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. You're meant to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. So when people experience Alliance Bible Church, when people experience Alliance Bible Church, are they being given a taste of the new heavens and the new earth to come? That's the question. That's the question. When people experience you, when people experience you, are you giving them a taste of the new heavens and the new earth to come. That's your takeaway, okay? That's the bottom line, that's the takeaway. Gospel plus safety plus time is crucial to this. We can't be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth without gospel safety time. We cannot be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth without gospel safety time. Pull any one of those out, it ceases to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. So in the remainder of our time, here's what I'm going to do. It's technical, but I want to dive into the biblical nuts and bolts of uh, drawing connecting lines between and among the items that were on this list. Okay, you saw it, Eden, tabernacle, temple, promised land, all, all those, that list. I want to draw some connecting lines between and among them. This is not comprehensive. You don't want it to be comprehensive. So let's start with this. Let's draw some connecting lines between the Garden of Eden and the Tabernacle Temple. And I'm putting Tabernacle Temple together because essentially the Tabernacle is in the Temple once the Temple's constructed. Okay, let me draw some connecting lines between the two. First connecting line. Both were to be the unique place of God's presence. Eden was a place where Adam walked and talked with God. Eden was a place where Adam walked and talked with God. Genesis 3.8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Hebrew verbal form used in Genesis 3.8 to describe God walking is the same word used to describe God's presence in the tabernacle. It's the same word used to describe God's presence in the tabernacle. Um, I have not dwelt, God says, dwelt, this word dwelt, in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Walking, dwelling, walking, dwelt, the same Hebrew form. Both were the unique place of God's presence. Second connecting line. Both were the place of the first priest. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, Adam, put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. 
Those two Hebrew words, work and take care, are used to describe the duties of the priests in charge of the tabernacle temple. One example of that is Numbers 3. They, priests, are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work, there it is, of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Numerous scholars have looked at that and noticed the connection between this and what Adam was charged with, and they conclude out of that that Adam's responsibilities were more than being a green thumb. He had spiritual responsibilities. Among them, to preserve the sanctity of the Garden of Eden by keeping out unwelcomed guests such as the serpent, first duty, second duty. It was clear that God wanted the borders of Eden to expand. He wanted them to fill the whole earth, but his design was never for them to leave the garden. Leaving the garden was a bad thing. How are they going to stay in the garden and fill the earth at the same time? By expanding the borders of Eden. Until the world became one gigantic paradise something went wrong and now we await that day Adam's responsibilities in the garden were more than spiritual he wasn't just a green thumb next connection both were guarded by a cherubim after Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word and removed from the garden of Eden God put cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life Genesis 3 The guarding role of the cherubim became memorialized during the time of Moses. In Exodus 18, God commanded Moses to build two cherubim statues, place them on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. The place where God's presence dwelled and manifested itself among the people of Israel. Same arrangements were made for Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8. I wish I could go on to this uh, in more detail. See the connections between the Garden of Eden, Tabernacle Temple. Let's move further in the story. Let's draw connections between the temple and Jesus. Between the temple and Jesus. Both were the unique place of God's presence. We've already established the tabernacle temple as a unique place of God's presence. Jesus becomes that. John 2, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus replaces the temple as the dwelling place of God with his people. John 1.14 is a, a pithy way of capturing it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling literally tabernacled among us. Jesus becomes the dwelling place of God. Second connection, Jesus as the new temple also becomes the priest. Adam was the priest. You had the priests of Israel. Now Jesus is the priest. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest, Jesus, Over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. 
Jesus becomes the new Adam. He becomes the new priest, engaging in the priestly ministry within the dwelling place of God. Third connection, Jesus as guarding the entrance to the dwelling place of God. He's not only the dwelling place himself and the priest, he's also the gate. John 10, 9, I am the gate, Jesus says. Whoever enters through me will be saved. This is demonstrated clearly in a passage we know well, John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is why it makes sense for the apostles in Acts 4 to say salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given to mankind by which we must be saved. To find, quote unquote, salvation in someone other than Jesus is to end up at a destination other than the dwelling place of God. Jesus is the gate to the dwelling place of God. To enter through some other means is to end up at a destination other than the dwelling place of God. So these are threads connecting Eden to the tabernacle temple to Jesus. Now let's go farther, hang in there with me. No farther, temple to Jesus, to Christian and church. First, the Christian and church as the place of God's presence. First Corinthians 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys this temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Paul is killing two birds with one stone. He's demonstrating not only is the individual Christian a dwelling place of God, the temple of God, but the collective group of believers known as the church is the dwelling place of God. Second connection. The Christian and church are priests. First Peter 2, as you come to him, the living stone Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are the dwelling place of God. You are part of a royal priesthood. Third, the Christian and the church as guarding the entrance to the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 6, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. Says the Lord, touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. The reason Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden is that they were now unholy, defiled. The garden was reserved for only that which was holy. There needed to be separation. Christians are the new Eden. Christians are the dwelling place of God. And with that comes the responsibility for separation. Not physical separation as in medieval monasteries. Spiritual separation. Separation as in in it, not of it. Separation as in living holy lives before God. Separation as in being separate from sin. We guard the entrance to the dwelling place of God in our combat against sin. This is why growth in holiness needs to be a part of the core mission of the church. We are the temple of the living God. 
There is a line of demarcation that separates the holy, sanctified people of God and the sin that resides outside of it. Okay, one more. Connecting lines, Garden of Eden, Tabernacle Temple, Christian Church, New Heavens and New Earth. You ready? Last one. All of the place of God's presence. We've already established Eden as the place of God's presence. He walked and talked with Adam and Eve. We've seen how the tabernacle temple became the unique dwelling place of God. We've seen how individual Christians and collectively the church have become the dwelling place of God. It might be obvious the new heavens and the new earth we look forward to will also be the dwelling place of God, but let me show you how this is communicated in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and hide, high as it is long. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but John sees an arboreal city, a garden city. All of it's the new heavens and the new earth. And it's a cube, but it's not the Borg It was better than first service. (laughs) More Trekkies here. It's a cube. Now, I don't believe those are going to be the actual dimensions of the new heavens and the new earth. The measurements, measurements are not about dimensions. They're not about dimensions. They're about connections. They're about connections. There is only one other place in the Bible where there's a cube. The Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. Only one other place where there's a cube. What is God doing by revealing the dimensions of the new heavens and the new earth as a cube? He is saying to us, welcome, welcome to my dwelling place. You now live inside the ultimate holy of holies. That's the first connection. Second, all are the place of priestly ministry. It was, in in the uh, days of Israel, it was only the high priest who could spend any time at all in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and that was on the one day of the year following very specific criteria. We see how the work of Christ, because of the work of Christ, we have access to the presence of God, and the presence of God comes to dwell in us, The priestly ministry in the new heavens and the new earth looks a little different because no longer is there needed someone to atone for sins. That's been done for, uh, dealt with by Jesus. As part of the royal priesthood, all true believers will enjoy the presence of God in the new holy of holies. Revelation 22, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Watch it, here it is. They will see his face. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. All of these, Eden, Tabernacle Temple, Christian Church, New Heavens, New Earth, 
are the location of the priestly ministry. In the new heavens and new earth, however, there is no longer a need for the atoning ministry of the priest. The only thing priestly in the new heavens and new earth is that we get to enjoy the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God, because we will see his face. Third and finally, all are guarded. We've seen the separation that exists between Eden and the world outside of it, between the tabernacle temple and the world outside of it, the separation from sin that is to exist in the life of the individual Christian and the church. This separation exists with the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So the new heavens and the new earth, there still is a line of demarcation. Just like in every other instance of the dwelling place of God. This is not exhaustive. This is not exhaustive, but hopefully you're beginning to see the lines of connection that exist among all the manifestations of the presence of God, the dwelling place of God in Scripture. Let's go back to the question before us today. Why is gospel plus safety plus time important? The church is the dwelling place of God. The church is meant to be the new Eden. It's meant to be the new Eden. The church is meant to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. The church is meant to give people a taste of heaven to come. You as an individual Christian are meant to give people a taste of the new heavens and the new earth to come. When people experience Alliance Bible Church, are they being given a taste of the new heavens and new earth to come? When people experience you, are they being given a taste of the new heavens and the new earth to come? None of that can happen without gospel, safety, and time. Remove any one of those, and the church or the Christian will cease to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. How can the church possibly, or how can the individual Christian possibly be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth if there is no presence of the gospel? How can it be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth without the presence of safety, without a culture of grace? It's my desire to see our church possess a culture of gospel, safety, and time. In our Sunday morning gatherings, in our small group functions, when you're having coffee with another brother or sister in Christ, that you hear, speak, and experience gospel doctrine and gospel culture. That's the church's competitive edge. 
Madeline LaEngel says that Christians draw people to Christ by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. If the church community was a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth, don't you think when people from outside the community of this church come here, they'll see it, they'll experience it, they'll walk away saying there's something positively different about this group. People draw, Christians draw people to Christ by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Jesus said his disciples are the light of the world. We're the light of the world. He said, let your light shine before others. Gospel safety and time is our light. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture is our light. Let's let it shine inside the walls of this church and outside the walls of this church into our community and our world. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, the church holds a special place in your heart. And it's special not because we are. It's special because you chose to dwell among us. I pray we would never take that lightly. Lord, show us again how we as individual Christians and as a church are meant to give people a taste of the new heavens and the new earth to come. What an incredible privilege. God, I pray that your power would be at work in us, so that as a church and as individuals, we would exude gospel doctrine and gospel culture wherever we go. God, let the light of your son, Jesus Christ, be clearly seen in us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And God's people said, amen. Amen.